0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Robin Maynard. Robin Maynard is a black feminist writer and longtime anti-authoritarian organizer who has been active in movements around racial profiling, police violence, migrant justice, sex worker rights, and harm reduction, mostly in Montreal. Since its release in 2017 by Fernwood Publishing, her book Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present has been reviewed favorably, read widely, and discussed extensively. Its positive reception has spanned the range from glowing coverage in many of Canada's mainstream newspapers to praise as, quote, meticulously researched and compelling by legendary African-American feminist scholar and activist Angela Davis, and it has been a Canada-wide bestseller. As the title promises, the book traces the long history of how black people have been surveilled, policed, and subjected to state violence in Canada. One of its central tasks is linking the many ways and contexts in which anti-blackness is experienced in this country today to their roots in slavery and other features of anti-black oppression that were integral to society in what is now Canada in earlier centuries. Not only does it blow apart the myth that such things don't happen here, but it makes it clear that anti-blackness is no latter-day import from the US, but homegrown and deeply rooted in Canada. The book looks not only at the more commonly recognized sites and impacts of anti-black state violence, such as targeting by the criminal justice system, but also other institutional sites where black lives are policed and black people are subjected to harm, like schools, the immigration system, and the child welfare system. It explicitly pays attention to the ways in which state violence is experienced by black women, black trans and gender nonconforming people, black queer people, black people with disabilities, and various other intersections with blackness. It does all of this by building on the work of generations of black scholars and writers, work largely excluded from mainstream narratives of this country and largely ignored by white Canadians, and draws from many a research report on black experience and anti-black racism that had been put on the shelf to gather dust as soon as it was written. As a result of the enthusiastic reception that Policing Black Lives has received, Maynard has been engaged in what amounts to a non-stop book tour since it was released, and has done speaking engagements and book launch events across the country. Though the book itself is not focused on questions of resistance and struggle, though of course it acknowledges how crucial resistance is, one of the key features of this last year for Maynard has been the opportunity that this has provided for her to meet and talk with activists and organizers, particularly black activists and organizers, from across the country. Sometimes they have presented alongside her, and almost always there has been engagement and dialogue that have allowed her to learn about local struggles, and to develop a grounded sense of how this moment of resurgent black struggle is playing out across Canada. It has also been an opportunity to engage in dialogue about the ideas in the book, with activists and organizers who ground their grassroots political work in a wide range of movements. I interview Maynard about the book about its uptake in movement contexts, and about her perception of Black struggles in Canada today.
1: My name is Robin Maynard, and I am an author, I am an activist, I'm a community organizer. I come from a long history of being involved in different work around racial profiling, in the sex worker rights movement, in the migrant justice movement, and most recently I'm the author of Policing Black Lives. Policing Black Lives is a book that is attempting to make sense of the crisis facing black people's lives today across multiple state institutions, whether you look at the criminal justice system, the immigration system, the school-to-prison pipeline and public schooling, child welfare system, and in the economy and the structural racism embedded in the economy It was really a book that was trying to piece together why at really every institution and every step of the way, you have the ongoing dehumanization of black people. And it was an attempt to really bring the history forward that could help us make sense of this as well, to bring forward Canada's history of slavery and its relationship to what we're looking at today. I've been involved in social justice movements since my late teens. I remember moving to Montreal and very early on starting to do different volunteer work with an organization called Head in Hands that was in NDG, which is home to a lot of Montreal's Anglo-Black communities and Caribbean, Anglo-Caribbean Black communities, which is my background as well. And I was encountering so many really beautiful youth doing a lot of really interesting and beautiful work with these wonderful young people. And so often when I was talking to these teenagers, they were talking about, you know, horrific encounters with the police of not being able to spend time in public parks without being forced to literally separate from each other because they were seen in the words of the police as under suspicion of a gang and something else that really struck me i think was the way that people felt so ashamed of what had happened often as if it was their fault as if they had brought that on themselves right because often i think there's a lack of awareness of the fact that this is about systemic racism it's not about things that we deserve to happen to us so at that time i was part of creating a grassroots group in the neighborhood called project x And it was really related to combating racial profiling in the neighborhood, to naming and addressing it with that part of the city, and also to doing, you know, workshops with youth that were experiencing racial profiling in different ways that would help just create a sense of empowerment, a kind of awareness. My focus on education and self-education and political education as a way of addressing injustice is something that really began then. Since then, I've gone on to be part of many different social justice movements. I helped organize I think it was called the Forum Against Police Violence or something like that in 2010. In organizing that conference, I actually ended up organizing one panel with other people as well that involved the family members of different people who'd been killed by the police. we were all addressing, you know, the different ways that they'd experienced really similar forms of humiliation, of denigration in the press, of lack of access to justice. And from that, we ended up creating a coalition that was called Justice for Victims of Police Killings. So it was largely led at the time by families. And we ended up organizing an annual and vigil on October 22nd to fight against police violence and impunity and also to call for an overhaul of the way that police killings were addressed because at that time the police were investigating other police who would kill so like a full kind of impunity I also spent a lot of time doing outreach work and harm reduction work with criminalized people through, for example, my work at Stella. So when I was doing that, I was doing outreach work with a lot of Black and Indigenous women who were working in the sex trade, who were often close to the street, who were involved in illicit economies, often moving in and out of prison and experiencing so many different kinds of harm, whether that was police violence, whether that was the extreme kind of surveillance and control that comes into your life when you have any kind of involvement in illicit economies and really just witnessing firsthand the extremely damaging ways that that child welfare can really impact people's lives. And at that moment, my role was more to help people on an individual one-to-one basis. But that, again, I think really created a sense of frustration with the fact that the systems were really not designed to protect us. And that's something that I think really drove me towards writing the book that ended up being Policing Black Lives. A lot of the time, for example, if you're organizing, say, a march or a vigil or something like that, and you're often trying to explain the kinds of racism that exists in our society to actually say that this isn't just black communities saying that there is police violence, that this is something that's actually been documented, that the over-incarceration of black communities is something that is real. I found that as much as I was trying to articulate that and articulate it publicly, it always gets dismissed with this idea that that is alleged, that black activists are always alleging injustice. And I think what I really wanted to do was to demonstrate that it's far from alleged that this is something that has been you know, historically documented, that you can historically trace. This is something that is a reality. And I realized that I needed a different forum if I was actually going to try to argue that message in a way that would be taken seriously. So that's something that really just made me want to start collecting that data that I'd often been collecting in order to do popular education and workshops from what I realized was, I just really needed to put it together in a more concrete way that I really wanted to make this more clear. And something that I also realized was the more that I was speaking with people about this, I realized that not only do people, and by people, I mean people not in the black community, to be clear. Not only do people not have necessarily much awareness of the realities of Black people living in Canada, there's also a total lack of awareness around that history, around the history of 200 years of slavery. So it's just something that I felt really strongly that I needed to do. It just began to feel more and more urgent as I was part of a group called Monial Noir that had formed after Bonnie Jean-Pierre was killed by the police in 2016 and just feeling the urgency, I guess, of what was happening with the police, but also more broadly in Montreal, but also in this country. You know, with the growth of the Black Lives Matter movement, it became clear and clearer to me that this is really something that we needed to fight across the country, and that I really wanted to contribute something that would help us to do that.
0: Given the ways in which these histories and these present-day realities are constantly ignored and sidelined and suppressed, what kinds of things did you have to do to find these resources that you were using as the basis for writing the book?
1: There are two ways of answering that, and I'm going to give you both of them. One that I think is actually really important is that people often talk about the histories of Black people in Canada as if they're invisible. But I think we need to think about it as actually invisibilized, right? As actually actively erased and actively suppressed because there is actually an enormous wealth of work that has been produced by Black writers about slavery in Canada, about segregated schooling. This information is there, and I think it's really important to look at the fact, the incredible work that, for example, Charmaine Nelson has done, that Harvey Armani Whitfield have done towards really excavating the history of slavery in what was then New France, in Nova Scotia, that these histories aren't unknowable. It's that they're actually just not being taken up within popular narratives. The work of Sylvia Hamilton, for example, to document segregated schooling in The Little Black Schoolhouse, her documentary on the last segregated school in Canada that closed in 1983. So a lot of these facts that Canadians often express to me as shocking are things that I think we need to realize that I'm not by far the first person to address. And what I'm really actually trying to do is to draw on a lot of those works that are so incredible and that are so demystifying and are so beautifully and lovingly produced by Black folks in Canada. You know, the works of Dion Brand as well, Catherine McKittrick, Ronaldo Walcott, there is so much about and by the Black diaspora in Canada that I think just gets really widely pushed to the side. And I think I really wanted to elevate that work. But something else that it's also important to think about is that it is also difficult in other ways to get information around black folks in Canada. A lot of that is actually by suppression at the government level. So, for example, if I want to access the percentage of black people that are incarcerated in jail in Quebec, I'm actually not able to do so because they claim not to collect that data and they certainly won't release that data if we want to look federally, they collect information of that sort and release it publicly. But the only information that we have around the vastly disproportionate rate of Black people that are incarcerated in jails in Canada is because of, for example, a Black criminologist at University of Toronto, Akwazi Bempa, who's literally had to do access to information to find and release that information. Or we have journalists like at the Toronto Star or Vice Magazine, for example, that have done really incredible work towards bringing out this data that we do not have as publicly available surrounding, for example, police killings, the really high rates with which Black communities communities experienced police killings that CBC just pulled out. So that's something that does make it extremely difficult. That means that the process is you're like digging through government documents that were never widely publicized, reports around, for example, anti-Black racism that were published but never really spread widely. So it really is in many ways just doing this digging and pulling together these many narratives that have never really been placed in one place before.
0: What would you say are the key core ideas that you try to convey in the book?
1: One of the main goals of Policing Black Lives was to look first at the historical legacy of slavery in Canada, and to really draw forward that after the abolition of slavery, both ways of seeing Black people in terms of the assumption that Black people are less than human, are inclined to criminality, are less able to feel pain, are less sentient, and also ways of treating Black people in terms of actually control over movement, in terms of widespread surveillance, in public and private spaces, and even vulnerability to physical punishment and death, that these practices were very much carried forward after the abolition of slavery across multiple state institutions, whether that's the criminal justice system the immigration system, child welfare, or schools. Even if you look, for example, into public schools in Canada, you see that black youth continue to be treated as if they're a danger, we continue to be expelled and suspended at rates that are disproportionately high to white students that I argue in the book are very much related to the way that under slavery, black children were not considered children, but were considered property. And under segregation, black kids were considered a danger to white kids. It's really just trying to really understand the ways that anti-blackness has evolved and has created the present conditions that black people in Canada are facing today of widespread injustice and vulnerability to harm and even death at the hands of the state. Something that was really important for me as well was that I think it's very common in the ways that people understand blackness and anti-blackness to only be something that really discusses the realities of black men. And I think that's a very important black feminist intervention of the last generations has really been to insist that it's also black women that are being targeted in particular and gendered ways. There's also black trans women that are being targeted in particular gendered ways. That is very important for us to maintain always widely within our scope and not just sort of add as a side piece So that very intersectional understanding of anti-black racism was extremely important to me to really put forward. I was also trying to do something with the idea of policing that extends well beyond law enforcement. I wanted to look at how the widespread surveillance and punishment of black people's lives extends well beyond law enforcement. So, for example, for black women, often you have social workers who can be actually investigating them for things like welfare fraud. So I think it was really important for me to look at the way that different institutions also encompass what we could call and should call, I think, policing and policing of black lives.
0: When these discussions happen in Canada, which of course isn't very often, it's often constructed in a way that refers primarily to the United States, either people denying that it happens here or people talking about how anti-blackness happens in Canada, primarily in a way that compares it to the United States. It seemed to me that you were trying to intervene in that and cultivate different ways of talking about anti-blackness in Canada. Talk a bit about that.
1: So, first of all, I think it was important for me to look at what are actually some comparisons that make clear that, you know, anti-blackness in some ways is comparable, right? If you look to, for example, the push-out rates in some Canadian cities versus American cities.
0: Uh, And push-out meaning students who are pushed out of the school system by experiences of anti-blackness and by other kinds of barriers.
1: If you look to actually the disproportion of black youth that are in state care that have been taken by the child welfare system that are actually in some locations actually higher than other locations in the United States. If you look to the rate of over-incarceration, these are things that are actually in some ways comparable. But I think that also what is wrong with continually comparing it to the United States is that what it does is it actually denies the very important question, which is what does anti-blackness look like here? And that should actually be something that is allowed to stand on its own. You often have in the press these questions like, is Canada becoming like the United States? But I think it's important to understand that Canada is precisely proceeding along the trajectory that is Canada, that is Canada's particular treatment of black communities that has evolved here historically over hundreds of years, that is not being borrowed from anywhere, but is something that is as Canadian as maple syrup. You know, you even have John E. MacDonald in 1867 saying that black men are a sexual danger to white women and this is why we should maintain the death penalty, right? So this isn't something that, like, we got from American TV in the 1980s. And what I also wanted to make clear was that when we look, At anti-blackness in Canada, specifically and without comparison, we also find ourselves with things that are actually relatively unique that wouldn't necessarily come clear if we were only using the American lens to understand anti-blackness. So, for example, in Canada, while some percentage of our population is black people that were the descendants of enslaved Africans, a really significant percentage of Canada's black population is migrant. So that means that when we're, for example, addressing things like street checks and racial profiling... We, of course, need to argue that that's a harm in and of itself, and that, of course, that can lead to things like over-incarceration in jails and prisons. But if you're looking at a population that is broadly migrant like you have in Canada, we see that that actually is also putting black people at risk of immigration detention, of deportation, that other level of harms that is a reality of black life here that, you know, defines the realities of perhaps a much smaller black migrant population in the United States, but is much more definitive, I think, of a broad black experience in this country. So I think it's very important that we actually take this history on its own, that we look at Canada's history of the ways that, for example, black migrants were particularly brought in from the 1950s through to the present under temporary work statuses and exploited for their labor and often experiencing sexual harm and all kinds of labor abuse. But these are particular Canadian realities. We can't just import historical lenses from other places indiscriminately, right? We need to actually understand our own histories.
0: What in particular have you hoped that social movements and communities in struggle would take from engaging with policing Black lives?
1: First and foremost, I wrote this book to and for and with Black activism, Black social movement for Black folks in Canada. I think that that was really my primary audience that was to like really be thinking through with so many other people that are doing this work, how we got to where we are today. And more importantly, I think to help that ground us in where we are going. I've been really happy to see a very popular reception of the book. The fact that it was a bestseller was astounding to me. But really fundamentally, what I'm the most happy to see is the way that this is being taken up in Black communities. So something that I've gotten to do since the book has come out has been Sort of a non-stop, seemingly never-ending book tour, which in many ways has been really exciting because, for example, almost every time that I do a book launch in a different city in Canada, I always tried to do it in tandem with black organizing in that city. So to say that, yes, here's a broad national sweeping historical and contemporary look at Canada, but to actually have audience members who'd be coming out to hear that also have to listen about what was actually happening in their city. So you can't have this denial of like, oh, that's only happening in Toronto. So, for example, when I was in Vancouver, I really enjoyed doing the book launch, but at the same time, I got to hear about the struggles that Black Lives Matter Vancouver is undertaking, about people that have been doing work to bring to light the displacement of Black communities, the destruction of Hogan's Alley, of the last generation in Vancouver. So I think what's been really beautiful about it is how we can actually tie this work together and I think how it can actually ground us as we move forward. Because there are so many other left social movements that have a really good analysis in many ways, but could also, I think, really benefit from a deeper understanding of anti-blackness. I was also thinking about, you know, writing to the migrant justice movements, writing to the sex worker rights movement, for example, as well, to remind people that it's really important to at times actually center or at least bring to light what black people are experiencing within these struggles because they can often get Erased under the ways that we talk about people of color and racialized people, but there are very unique realities faced by black people that it felt important for me to write into other social movements more broadly as a reminder and as sort of an ethical call to actually treat anti-blackness in its unique ways and to actually respect the organizing of black community organizers who often don't have their demands centered in broader left organizing.
0: So based on your experience of going to so many different places to talk with people about the book, what else have you learned about the kinds of grassroots work that Black communities and Black organizers are doing across the country?
1: Writing the book in many ways is really difficult and I don't want to say depressing, but it was really hard to come up against so many instances of different kinds of structural violence, of state violence, of the way that our lives have been lost and maimed and taken. So something that was so incredible after that was actually, I think, grounding myself in that energy, that resistance energy that we're seeing across the country. And what I realized as I was doing this book tour is, you know, in Montreal, I felt very much that we were having a renaissance of black activism. In the last years that I was there, that really, I think, black communities were refusing to accept this ongoing treatment. You know, the fact that we're still fighting, for example, around police killings, like three decades after people had last taken to the streets about it. But what I realized traveling this is this renaissance is happening across the country. And also, it's very often young Black people and queer Black people that are really starting to unapologetically if take up this space. A lot of women, a lot of trans and gender nonconforming people are really pushing this issue and also refusing to apologize for the fact that they are women, that they're trans, that they're queer, or really seeing as kind of a revolution in Black organizing across the country that I feel is really exciting. So, for example, I grew up in Winnipeg, but I hadn't been back there very much since I moved when I was 17. But when I was there for my book lunch, I met some really great people who are part of what's called Black Space Winnipeg. And a lot of queer and queer-supporting young Black folks that are just doing incredible work to address anti-Black racism in a way that I hadn't seen when I was there. And it was so incredibly inspiring to see the work that they were doing to raise consciousness in the community. Everywhere you go, you have these different histories. So, for example, in Toronto, I was really happy to do my launch there, and it was so incredible to connect you know, with people who had actually been part of the Black Action Defense Committee, who in many ways are like the predecessors to the Black Lives Matter movement, and people from, for example, the Black Women's Collective, who were Black lesbian feminists in the 1980s that were taking up the space that, for example, we think Black Lives Matter is taking now, and really meeting communities that have been part of the struggle for a very long time, that are now, you know, the elders to the folks that are organizing today. It's just really been inspiring to see, I guess, the incredible kinds of social movement and the kind of social movement histories that is really different to write about than to be present in and with.
0: What kinds of things were you hoping that social movements not predominantly grounded in Black communities would take from the book? And what kinds of conversations have you been having with organizers grounded in those movements?
1: So here's an example. I think that sometimes within the broader mainstream immigration movements in the U.S. and Canada, you often have this assertion, you know, migrants aren't criminals, that people that are trying to cross borders are workers. They're not criminals. They're not committing crimes. But if you have an understanding of how anti-blackness has played out historically, you understand that actually creating that apparent distance between good migrants and criminals, for example, is actually riddled with a legacy of anti-blackness because black people have been historically presumed to be criminal and have been historically targeted and over-incarcerated and criminalized by the state. So when you, for example, have that kind of comparison without critically actually looking at how black people that are perceived as criminal are also actually victims of injustice and of state violence in ways that we should actually be combating both of those things, I that if you have a deeper understanding of how criminalization has been used as a weapon against Black communities, you'd, for example, be less likely to make comparisons like that, that do create in some ways support for migrant communities, but actually then perceive, create even less support for Black migrant communities that are seen as the bad migrants in that way. And that's something that has actually played out if you look to the widespread and targeted deportations of Jamaicans living in Canada, particularly since the 1990s. Thinking about a deeper history of anti-Blackness helps us to interrupt that kind of narrative. What this deeper understanding of anti-blackness and policing can bring to, for example, the sex worker rights movement is that this idea that if we achieve decrim, which I believe that we must, if we have the decriminalization of sex work, sex workers would be safer. That is absolutely true, I think, for sex workers of any racial background. We know that criminalization exposes sex workers to targeting by abusers to higher rates of HIV, to all kinds of harm. But I think that we still need to have this solidarity with black communities, with black women and black trans and gender non-conforming people that reminds us that for black people, regardless of which laws there are, we continue to be targeted by those laws at disproportionate rates, right? So we need to have an understanding that yes, pushes for decrim, but also understands that for black people, criminalization is constant. And whether it's done by, you know, sex work laws, whether it's done by things like loitering or drug laws and things like that, that there's always this over-targeting. So I think just to remember that there's much more that needs to be addressed than just that. So I think that's something that helps to fine tune the analysis of that movement, for example. And not to say that many people aren't making those connections, right? There are many Black sex workers and Indigenous sex workers within the movement making that exact argument. But I still think it's something that is really important to keep in mind, maybe for the more mainstream element of that movement work.
0: So thinking again of your experience of getting to engage with so many Black activists and organizers in so many parts of the country, what would you like to see happen next in terms of the ongoing growth and development of this current moment of Black resistance?
1: First and foremost, the lesson has been since I've been touring this book is that this next generation is dope. And I think that what... I'm really excited about moving forward is, I used the word unapologetic before, but I think it will be a little bit more clear in terms of what that means. I think that in some tendencies of past, generations. In some cities, at least, there's been more of a tendency toward respectability politics, towards really appealing to the state, towards, I mean, it seems as if, you know, black people are good and respectable and therefore deserving of rights. But I think what we're starting to see now is a much more radical narrative, one that I find really exciting, which says that, you know, we're not looking for a proportionate rates of police violence in black communities. What if we start to say what would it mean to actually defund the police, abolish the police? What would it actually mean to put, you know, for example, the budget that goes into policing in so many of our cities into things that would actually support black communities like decent housing. And I think that these broader and much more radical conversations that are actually questioning the criminal justice system itself, questioning policing itself, I think that that is why I feel particularly excited about this moment because I think not only are we seeing a new level of mobilization, but we're also seeing a really radical questioning of what we've been forced to see as the status quo for so much of our lives. Just saying that no, the status quo is unacceptable and it is violent And I think there's a broader understanding of that and a broader commitment to really address systemic harm as a whole, as opposed to piecemeal reforms.
0: So once the work of promoting Policing Black Lives recedes a little bit, what are your plans for your activities? Are you going to write another book?
1: Well, the book is coming out in French in October. It's really important to me, having spent so much of my adult life in Montreal and Quebec, that this is something that is accessible in both languages. So I'm really looking forward to that. And... You know, I told myself that I wasn't going to do any more writing after this book, you know, because I was exhausted, but I'm always writing. I have a few projects on the go and I'm working slowly on another book that I'm not ready to speak about publicly. But absolutely, I think that what I'm realizing is that, you know, we all, I think, have a lot of different ways of interacting with the world around us and addressing injustice. And just as I think, as I've always been an activist, I'll probably always be a writer. things that I'm starting to think about more are black resistance and transformation and anti-blackness in a broader sense. But that's all I'm going to say about that for now.
0: You have been listening to my interview with author and activist Robin Maynard about her book Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present. To learn more about Maynard and about the book, go to robinmaynard.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.